Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The year is 1983, and you'll blow your ear out. The movie, A Christmas Story. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. <laughs> I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And since it's the holiday season, we figured we would focus on a film that is a classic. I think up there with It's a Wonderful Life, people look at this film, they idolize this film. If you look at every Christmas film after this, it owes a little bit to a Christmas story. And we actually took that idea and brought it into the future because there's a movie that came out this year called 8-Bit Christmas, uh, directed by Michael Douse, who I think takes a little bit from the page of A Christmas Story, and we're going to talk to him later on in the episode. But Amy, you and I are going to break down this Christmas classic, a, a classic that so many people wanted us to talk about this holiday season. And I love it. I think it slots right into the classics that we have, like It's a Wonderful Life, or like even ah, Shawshank Redemption, and that it like... This is one of those classics that really found its audience on TV. And so I am stoked. Let's get into it, man. So load up your Red Rider BB guns and let's unspool it. The year is 1983. Fraggle Rock debuts on HBO. In Japan, a new arcade game, Mario Brothers, is somewhat of a flop. It would be another two years until Mario and Luigi made a name for themselves as video game characters. The U.S. had the highest unemployment since 1941. Motorola releases the first mobile phone. Sally Ride becomes the first American woman in space. And the hot films of this year are Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, Flashdance, Trading Places, and today's film, A Christmas Story. Amy, who's in it, what's it about, and what was on the radio? A Christmas Story, directed by Bob Clark and co-written by Clark, Lee Brown, and most of all, Gene Shepard, the writer and radio personality behind a book of short stories called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And that is the book where the movie's vignettes come from. 
Gene, you know his voice. He narrates the Christmas adventures of Ralphie Parker, a boy who just needs a few things to be happy. He's got to get rid of local bully, Scott Farkas. He's got to win his teacher's love and admiration by writing the best essay in the world. And he's got to convince his parents to buy him an official Red Rider carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Ralphie's parents are played by Melinda Dillon and Darren McGavin, who do not want to buy him an official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time because he will, of course, shoot his eye out. Take a listen. Next to me in the blackness lay my oiled blue steel beauty. The greatest Christmas gift I had ever received or would ever receive. Gradually, I drifted off to sleep, pranging ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots. A Christmas Story premiered on November 18th, 1983 and did okay. But the film really found its audience when channels like TNT started to play it for 24 hours straight during the holidays. What else was in the zeitgeist that weekend in 1983 that was catching the attention instead? Well, when you take that and rewind it back, the number one song on the charts was Lionel Richie's All Night Long. Now, you might be wondering, Amy, what's the connection between Lionel Richie and Ralphie Parker? Well, nothing. I tried really hard to find one and I got stumped, but Lionel is great anyway. And I was thinking, if you want to buy the Lionel fit in your life, their 2022 Christmas present early, I suggest you go to Etsy where you can buy a cutting board that says, hello, is it me you're cooking for? A barbecue <laughs> apron that says, hello, is it meat you're looking for? A mug that says, hello, is it tea you're looking for? And a small dish that says, hello, is it keys you're looking for? Wow, Amy, I love that you went this deep. <laughs> Man, I hate getting stumped. Which which of those do you want? Which of those do you want for 2022? Oh my gosh, I think keys. Because as someone who is always losing their keys, I would like to look at Lionel's face and feel like he has found my keys every time. It would make me feel so good. Oh, he'll find them no matter when you lose them. All day long, all night long. Well, actually, you know, I'll tell you, it's going to be very helpful because I often leave my keys on the ceiling. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into it, man. I've been looking forward to rewatching this, which is crazy when I think that this is probably one of the movies on our list that I've seen more times than anything else. Absolutely. You talked about how this movie played over and over and over again on TV. This was the holiday movie that was injected into my veins, so much so that I went through a large phase. Well, I'm going to just be honest and have rejected this movie for decades. I don't want to see it again. It is like a, a fruitcake that I was forced to eat as a kid. And now I've really like it lives nicely in my memory, but I don't put it on rotation in my Christmas movie marathoning. Wait, you don't like fruitcake either? Oh my God, Amy, who likes a fruitcake? You got to have a panettone, I... a panettone. Do it the, the a different way, traditional <laughs> Italian way, panettone. I love them both. Give me that dried orange peel right in my veins anyway. And not because the movie is bad, but just because I was 
overexposed. And so every year when I am lining up all my Christmas movies that I want to watch in the month of December, this film has not been on the list. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I saw it, but I know it. It's in my veins. So when I rewatch it for the show, I watch it with my kids. But more importantly, it all came flooding back. Um, you know, it just all just like Neo in the new Matrix. It all comes flooding back. Oh, man. Spoilers, bro. I figured that was not a spoiler because I was in the. Tra- I mean, I, 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 there's no, there's no spoiler. You know that I've been watching the trailer with the mask over my face. I didn't what? even know that. Oh, you yeah. Know that there's a, no, I don't. I don't. No, that, that's not. I know a, nothing. <laughs> I am great at being ignorant when I want to. I am like the best. It's at not ignorance. even. A, that's not even a spoiler. That's not a. That's my. You saw, okay? You haven't seen anything. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, I, you know that there's a matrix. All right, yeah, that. I privilege. I privilege walking through the world like a true blonde. It's I wonderful. love that. Um, But no, I mean, I'm in that same boat. Honestly, when we rewatched it for the show, it was the first time I think I had seen it in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the film that I was picturing in my head was actually super different. I had lumped it, I think, over the decade into that class of movies of like 1950s nostalgia, sort of like, you know, American graffiti and like everything Mm -hmm. else we've been doing on this show that's like 1950s nostalgia. I don't even think I realized until this watch that this isn't even the 1950s at all. I think when I was a kid, all old things were probably the 50s. And it's not. It's like the 1930s, maybe 1940. It's some like kind of nebula zone where the Wizard of Oz is out, but nobody's talking about World War II. So it's like right in that sweet spot where the depression was almost over and you had Oz and like for maybe 12 months, maybe you thought the world was okay. Yeah. Ah, those three weeks were a pure joy. Yeah. I think one of the, the things that I really love about this movie is Gene Shepard. And I think that that gives this movie such a unique point of view because very rarely do you have the writer, a famous writer, uh, narrate his own story so much so that I think I view Ralphie as Gene Shepard, like they are synonymous. It's very hard to have such a distinctive voice uh, and a character on screen who doesn't talk that much because you're hearing all their internal monologue as an older person. So I really um, have a hard time separating Ralphie not being Gene Shepard. Like when I have seen uh, that actor, Peter Billingsley, I'm upset that he doesn't sound more like Gene Shepard. Wait, so you know who Gene Shepard is? Like, I really had to deep dive on Gene Shepard for this episode. I, I wasn't aware of him. Oh, but I, yeah. I read, like, that Jerry Seinfeld said that he, quote, formed my entire comic sensibility. Gene Shepard, to me, was somebody that I got into because of this movie. Yeah, I love this movie. Who is this guy talking? My dad, you know, showed me Gene Shepard. My, my family was very much into public radio and Garrison Keillor. And I feel like Garrison Keillor and Gene Shepard have like a similarity. You know, there's like a small town Americana life, uh, you know, like a, yeah. there's an energy there that, that I love the voice so much. I was like, well, where else can I find the voice? My dad gave me uh, some of his essays or books. I just remember reading them as a kid and feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm reading sequels. <laughs> Oh, I, okay, I get the Garrison Keillor thing. Like, my parents made me listen to so much Garrison Keillor growing up that if that voice walked into this room and said anything, I think I would, like, scream and puke at the same time. Oh, Amy, I was, like, front row at so many Garrison Keillor shows in New York City for the month of December. We would go. Oh. It was a big family tradition. It was a really fun thing to see a radio show live. And I think I have that, that connection to radio, and I feel like that voice, it's such a beautiful voice. Gene Shepard has yeah. an amazing voice. Um, I, I have to say this. When you said you were in the front row, the first thing that popped in my head was, 
oh, did you flash him your titties? And then I wow. didn't say it. And then I just said it and made it really weird. Wow. But I love that you would think, did I flash him my titties? Like, what? This is a. I mean, front row Garrison you, Keeler. I That's mean, are intense. you on? This is like Amy on cold medicine. I like this. Uh, that you are going, hey. you're going dirty. You're doing good, dirty after holiday. Oh, I'm um, working blue. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Um, well, let me just talk a little bit about uh, Gene Shepard. I'm sure you know about this too. This is not the first time that we heard about Ralphie and the Parker family, right? Uh, PBS had made these movies, these made-for-TV movies, hosted and narrated by Gene Shepard as well, um, and it predated the Christmas story. Um, so, like, uh, there was one in 1976 and one in 1978. Uh, it was called, like, The Phantom of the Open Hearth, and there was another uh, as a part of an anthology series called Visions, and they aired uh, one about the 4th of July, one of the interesting things about those movies is that uh, Ralphie was played by Matt Dillon in one of those movies. Whoa, really? Yes. A, a baby Dillon? Oh. Baby Dillon. Baby Matt Dillon. The 1982 one. That was, uh, yeah. So it, this had been I a mean, little that bit. That was like at the moment where everybody thought Matt Dillon was going to be that big star of the Brat Pack era. Like you go back and read articles about Matt Dillon from that era and everybody was like, that's the one. And nobody was looking at Tom Cruise or any of the other guys. They were like, Matt Dillon is going to be the biggest breakout star of this generation. That's so interesting. And I always view him as being like the first breakout star. He definitely felt like the first one that broke out. But then I was thinking about this. I can't help but see all the effects that this movie has on all the Christmas movies that I love. But more importantly, other pop culture. Like, I don't think you can think of the Wonder Years without the Wonder Years owing a little bit to this film. Yeah, to this idea of like wall-to-wall narration mm-hmm. that like, you know, I guess would say, I, I think like, like the narration in this movie has like one foot in the past and one foot in the present, which I think is what's interesting about it. Like the way that Gene Shepard reads Ralphie, you get like little kid ideas of, you know, how the world works. Like when little, when Ralphie is like, I need a gun because if I get a gun, I can protect my family. And this is what it'd be like to protect my family. And he goes in that like, save us Ralphie fantasy sequence. Mothers know nothing about creeping marauders burrowing through the snow toward the kitchen where only you and you alone stand between your tiny huddled family and insensate evil. Like that to me has such like in the moment kid brain, but then there's moments around it that also sound like an adult looking back. I mean, looking back at like how his mom hasn't eaten a hot meal in, you know, years, that kind of empathy that like a kid wouldn't necessarily have. Or like then sometimes he'll say words that I'm like, oh, a little kid doesn't know this. Like in the intro where he says, Bacchanalia. Downtown Holman was prepared for its yearly Bacchanalia of peace on earth and goodwill to men. 
like, I don't know. I really got caught up in the word bacchanalia. I was like, that really sets a tone for like this movie. He's like going to use like the exaggerated dramatic language that a kid doesn't know, but also fold it into like this really legit kid's eye view. I think that's why I like this narration. You know, narration always gets this bad rap uh, in films like, oh, it's just like extra words on top of the talking. But I love narration when it seems to kind of like compliment, undermine, add things that aren't on the screen. So to have the word like bacchanalia over pictures of kids like mashing their noses into a department store window and looking like, you know, just absolute wretches, that clash makes the narration really good to me. Well, I also think what I like about it is the difference of age, because exactly what you're saying, it gives you two different stories. You're following not the voice of the child's inner monologue, you're following the adult who's looking back on his childhood. And I think that's what works in the Wonder Years. So you actually have this layered perspective, the, you know, looking in the past and then living in the present. That's something that uh, I really think works really well in 8-Bit Christmas, which came out this year. We're going to talk to Michael Dowson a little bit, uh, where Neil Patrick Harris kind of runs the dialogue. I think when you're doing narration, it's a fine line of making sure the narration has its own arc and style as well. It just can't just, I don't think it always works as well when it is the internal monologue of the character as they are going through the thing that you are watching them go through. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh no, she's looking at me. What do I do? But it like only stays in that mode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but here I was kind of caught up in the idea of like, there are so many layers of kind of looking back in nostalgia when I watch this movie. Because, like, I watch this movie right now, you know, in, like, the last minutes of 2021, and I'm only thinking about watching this movie in the 80s. And then, like, but it's a movie from the 80s that's looking back at, like, the 1930s. And then there's moments in this movie where it, like, goes back even further, and he imagines his teacher in, like, Victorian dress. So he's, Mm -hmm. like, imagining his teacher wearing the clothes of, like, the 1890s. And I just thought like, man, that kid's imagining a past and then I'm imagining his past to me watching it and then he's imagining his past when he wrote it. It feels so weirdly layered in nostalgia. But at the same time, it's oddly timeless. Like you said, like we thought this was the 50s. I thought it was the 50s as well. And until you really said it earlier in the episode, I was like, oh, I guess it is the 30s. Like there is this energy where the themes are universal and the story Like, yes, the story is taking place in this time, but there's something that locks it in amber that we can all relate to. Because as a kid, I have no connection to the 50s or 30s, nor do I want that. You know, I just want to hear the story about a kid who wants something. And my kids loved watching it because they thought it was so dangerous to get a gun, right? That was the interesting thing, but they got the idea of wanting something. I guess watching it through the eyes of my kids now, which I was able to see what they responded to was it's a slower film than I remember because I think we all remember the big sequences, right? The tongue on the flagpole, the crazy-ass Santa Claus, which is such a insane, psychotic scene, which I love uh, so much, the leg lamp, and uh, I remember the, the dogs breaking into the house at the end. Like, those are, like, these big, fun moments of the movie. Oh, and the uh, Easter bunny suit. I think those are probably the major ones. But it takes a while to get to those moments. Like it's it's a much slower paced film. Like I forgot that entire sequence where he beats up the bully and 
how emotional that is, you know, and, and there's something really fulfilling about that. But, um, and actually kind of surprising that the movie went to those different spots. Like you could do a thing where he says fuck in front of his dad and you have the whole, you know, uh, getting his mouth washed out with soap, which my kids really, really loved, but also take this moment to feel like the pain of inflicting pain on somebody else. Like that was a, I haven't really seen a movie deal with something like that ever. You know, that that's such a specific feeling that uh, I thought was really interesting here. Now, technically, mm-hmm. he doesn't say fuck. He yes. says fudge. But then he says fudge because technically he does say fuck, which is a moment where like the narration is like contradicting what we see on screen because they are trying to still keep it like for kids, which I think is really kind of charming. It's like it's such a disconnect when you like hear it. For one brief moment, I saw all the bolts silhouetted against the lights of the traffic and then they were gone. Oh, Fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. I said the word. The big one. The queen mother of dirty words. The F dash 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 word. What did you say? Uh, that's what I thought you said. I mean, I think this movie has so much fun with like kind of fake cursing in this. Mm-hmm. Like, cause, cause like the big drama too, while he's like beating up the bully is that he's cursing and yes, everyone's right. hearing him curse. But then again, like it, even in this version, the curses you hear, I guess they sound like Elmer Fudd or something. He's or like, or Joe Pesci in home alone. Oh. Like it's that same thing. I couldn't help oh but see God. that similarity. Cause Joe Pesci, I think again, this is talking about how Christmas story owes a lot to all these Christmas movies in the past. Like Joe Pesci curses the same exact way. Oh, you're exactly right. No, that's true. And it it is so wonderful how that scene ends where he's like a fuse broken me. And it's this moment of like Ralphie being radicalized into violent anger. But it ends with his mom like taking him in his arms and him immediately bursting into tears. And that is so honest. You know, that, 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 yeah, like there's this moment of glory, I guess, while you're beating up the bully. But this movie doesn't do... The kind of like simplistic stuff that I think a lot of other movies do where like the bully gets his comeuppance and everyone's like, ha ha, sucks to be you. You know, the bully gets yeah. his comeuppance, but it's awful. And I appreciate that, that even like, like poor Scott, you know, the bully that he beats up. Like when you look at Scott closely, his sweater's kind of ragged. And, you know, Bob Clark is letting you know that Scott doesn't have a lot of money, that Scott's kind of broke. And like you get these little kind of glimpses that Scott's having a really hard time too, you know? And and I think that that's really sweet because I feel like a lot of movies in the eighties in this time kind of started the trend of like the bully is like the rich guy. And so to have the bully be like the poor kid and beating him up still sucks. That is a kind of like emotional drama that I love where you're not just supposed to high five. I actually think that this can go throughout the whole film. Like all these characters have a rich life or they all are a little bit complex um, more than what you were seeing in the movies of the time. Like just the idea that when 
he does tell his mom that the person who taught him the word fudge was his friend. And you watch his mom call his friend's mom on the phone and you hear him getting beaten like, ah, ah, like it's there is something there that also feels so real. It's like that moment in Empire Strikes Back when you hear Han Solo getting tortured in Bespin as you walk away. It's like there are consequences for all these characters and you see how they move from moment to moment. The same kid who gets beaten is the kid who, you know, sticks his tongue to the fire pole and how he comes into class so kind of like worn down. And, and you know, there are these like little moments of consequence. So they're not... The vignettes have a little bit more emotional weight, I guess, to them. Yeah, because, like, not only is the bully a little tragic and poor, but, like, Ralphie can be capable of cruelty. Mm -hmm. You know, Ralphie gets his friends hurt through this, even with that kind of, like, wide moon face that he's got that looks so innocent. Like, yeah, his his friend gets beaten up because he doesn't want to admit that his dad is teaching him to curse because his mother also doesn't seem to want to admit that his dad is teaching him to curse when his dad is clearly cursing all of the time and is cursing like even before he says the word fudge. That there's like this delusion in the house where nobody wants to blame the actual person who's teaching him swear words. Or like when, yeah, when his like buddy gets stuck to the pole, which I wondered how they did that. I finally looked it up. Apparently like the pole had like a suction tube in it so the, okay. it was like sucking a tongue into a hole. So then it was like, oh, I'm stuck in the hole. I'm so glad you solved that mystery because I also was like, how? I could not figure out how they did that because it looks so real. And it was. I guess it was. There you go. Good old fashioned ingenuity. It was. But like, OK, so when he leaves his buddy out there with his tongue stuck to the pole, his buddy who, again, like, I felt like that would be a scene that you might see when like, the bully kid is like the one who sticks his tongue to the pole. And then everyone's like, ha ha. And they leave the bully out there right. as like punishment. But here it's his friend and he totally sells him out. He just like lets him out there to freeze. And I was like, man, sometimes when I look at Ralphie and he's like in his little kind of adult, I'm going to grow up to be an insurance salesman suit in his little glasses. I was like, man, Ralphie's going to grow up to be like a really sucky old man. Like no, an old, he's like, going to grow up to be like Fox Gene Shepard. He's, no. well, he's Gene Shepard. He's, he's realized that he made these mistakes. It's not like he's embracing them. He's like, ah, yeah, we screwed over that kid pretty good. You know, it's like, I feel like you're part of the reason why we like him is because we're, we're seeing that he's capable of learning. Like this is his youthful indiscretions. Well, then that is that is fair. I like that because I like a movie where the hero can screw up all of the time. Because, uh, yeah, like if Ralphie was like the good kid who was like, we got to get my friend off the pole. Like, you're right. That isn't how kids act. By the way, always get your friends off the pole. Don't unless they want to be on the pole, get them off the pole. Exactly. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Work in blue. Work in blue. No, but no, I did get a little crazy and I like looked up Gene Shepard and I was like, what did Gene Shepard grow up like since he was new to me? Mm-hmm. And I found like a radio program that Gene Shepard did where he um, participated in the March on Washington in 1963, the one where Martin Luther King gave his big speech. And I, and I loved that. And I wanted to play a little bit of Gene Shepard, you know, being like a 1963 kind of like ally activist. Because I did go through this whole rabbit hole of imagining Ralphie, like, yelling at people because he doesn't want to wear a mask. Well, in the middle of it all, it's the greatest crowd I've ever been in my life. I'll tell you, I just never, it's a much greater crowd than you ever see at a ball game, which is supposed to be a fun thing, you know. Uh, Oh, uh, much greater, much more, much, much different thing. If you think you know about crowds, you don't know about it unless you've been in this one. 
In fact, a, a lady said to me, uh, a colored lady was standing next to me. We were talking for an hour about this. And she says, you know, she says, I, I just, she says, you can't tell the folks, you just cannot tell them how it was. I don't know how I'm going to tell them how it was at home because you can't tell them how it was unless you were here. And then if you, if you were here, you don't have to be told, you know. And, and, and that's exactly the, the truth. And, you know, she said one great line. She says, you know, I think even Satan was moved today. What a line. <laughs> I can I see Satan feeling very, very embarrassed about all the rottenness he's been doing for years. You know, I'm sitting at the home, boy. It's, it's actually like a really beautiful like radio program. It's over 40 minutes long and him just talking about what it was like to be there. And he he... He picks up on things I've never heard about in people talking about. He like picks up on like who's signing autographs and who's actually doing the work and who's not getting put in the photographs. It's a real like boots on the scene talk about what it was like to ride those buses. It's it's lovely. But I will say, yes, okay, I do believe that Ralphie grows, but I do appreciate that this movie isn't structured along like some big life lesson. Oh yeah. At the end of the movie, it's not like, and now I've learned to be nicer to my mom. Like sometimes he and his mom will bond, like when she covers him up for, for swearing and doesn't tell his dad. But then immediately in the next scene, he's like yelling at her that he wants to leave the parade. So all the little life, it's like very incremental and it will backslide. And it, there isn't like, I've learned to believe in myself, which I so appreciate because I feel like every kid's movie now has like a lesson and I'm really tired of it. No, I totally agree with you. I think that kids' movies nowadays are really trying to show you the lesson. But ultimately, if you're making a movie, there is something. There is a lesson there. You don't have to, like, underline it. You don't need to, like, push it to the forefront. Like, we're not going to take a test on it at the end. And I feel like a lot of movies really treat it like that. Like, what are we learning here? What are we learning? And this is really about just these vignettes about family life. It is like a short story. It feels like you're reading a book. I think that John Hughes must have been inspired by this film because National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation feels so much like another version of The Christmas Story because it's these little family vignettes. I love that movie, by the way, so much. And the vignettes are all held together because of the the way that the characters are drawn, the family is drawn, that the love is there. And yes, they could be fighting in one scene, they could be irritated in another, but they are they're connected by this universal bond a family. And I think the same thing is true for the Christmas story. Well, it's funny because like Zach Ward, the actor who plays Scott, he said that this movie is quote, basically Homer's the Iliad. You know, I oh, guess, wow. yeah. And another story, I suppose, like structured around like little vignettes and families well, getting really mad at each other when like a guy sacrifices his daughter. So he wins a war. But I, I thought that was like such a fun comparison. He's like, yeah. he like takes it to this like level of like, higher literature. He also, by the way, has like admitted when people ask him that he only made $5,000 for doing this movie. And every year he gets like $900 royalty. It's like kind of lame, but oh well. Oh, and he said that because it was like the 1930s, all of their clothes were super woolen and really itchy. Which, yeah, like watching this, I went back in time. I was like, oh yeah, it's a time before you had like neoprene ski suits and stuff. Like they are cold, man. Oh, yeah. And you feel that, too, that the way that that one hit Ralphie's brother is bundled up, like, is such like is such a great visual. But again, here's a movie that came out in 1983 that I still feel like my kids in 2021, who are five and seven, are enjoying and laughing at. I don't know if this movie overall is a great movie. I think this movie has great scenes and great pieces to it. 
And I'm not saying, oh, it doesn't arc. That's why it's not a great movie. I just feel like there's something about it that is hard for me to want to go back and rewatch it. Like the movies that I rewatch all the time at this time of the year, Elf, Christmas Vacation, Scrooged. I'm not even getting into like the Die Hard, uh, but Home Alone. You know, those are the movies I can kind of revisit time and time again. Um, and, you know, we're talking about a movie made in 1983. I thought this movie was made in like the 50s. It's so weird. It's my kid brain. So like for a movie in the 80s, we're also talking about other movies in the 80s or early 90s here at the same time. So it's not like, oh, well, they didn't, you know, there was a slower time of making movies here. It just, it has a different pace to it. And I find that um, the pieces kind of outweigh the film. I don't know what you think about that. Like, I mean, I love the acting in it. I love the characters. The mom is amazing. The dad is phenomenal. Everybody that pops up. I mean, the, the leg sequence is is classic. I mean, it, it like that the way that that dad is so excited about that leg that he won and wants to display it because he won something. And the way that that is played is so incredibly funny, but it's more funny to me in remembering it than even seeing it in a way. And that's how I feel about this entire movie. Like, I like all these sequences more in my memory than I do when I'm watching it. Is that oh, crazy? Man. Yeah. Yeah, that is crazy. I disagree completely. Okay. Like, I mean, like watching this movie, being really interested in like the kids movies we make nowadays, which almost like a parent, I have to watch all of them for work. So I'm like very yeah. aware of like the nonsense that's going on in kid movies. This one I just thought was wonderfully done. Like I appreciate it from like head to toe. I appreciate the way that like the lighting is kind of like dim and naturalistic and everything isn't like cranked up and bright and childish. I appreciate, you know, how it's kind of more anti-sentiment than I thought it was. Like I thought this movie was really like sugar rolled and like, oh, it was so great. Like, I thought going back to watch this that I would actually hate it, this watch. I was expecting it to be just like, you know, little American graffiti for kids and like yeah. the trials and troubles and tribulations of like just some like little blonde kid in the suburbs where everything's kind of fine and he wants a gun. I was like, oh man, it's like, it's like a gun loving movie, blah, blah, blah. Although then what I thought about it, I was like, actually, I think the way that he describes his love of guns this might be an anti-gun movie. I was going down my head about that. Ah, there it is. The holy grail of Christmas gifts. The Red Ryder 200-shot range model air rifle. And there he is. Red Ryder himself. In his hand was the knurled stock of as coolly deadly looking a piece of weaponry as ever I had laid eyes on. The way that he describes wanting a gun in this scene sounds so ridiculous. And like that fantasy that we played earlier, where he's like, I can rescue everybody. Uh, I noticed like, it's making fun of this childish idea that like, here he is like standing his ground, you know, but when he shoots people, there's no blood and they die and they have X's in their heads. And it's right. showing how immature, like a stand your ground mentality is. So I, I went very hard on that, that train of thought about this because BB guns really freak me out. And by the way, like kids really do shoot their eyes out. Like, did you know, because I had to look this up. Yeah. 8,500 children per year go to the ER for like air rifle and Nerf gun injuries. Like that kids between 13 and 17 make up 47% of it. And of the injured boys are like 87.1% of it. Whoa. So to be like a young kid with a gun, Ralphie's 12 here. He's a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. 
You really might shoot your eye out, man. It definitely happens. Yeah. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Gene Shepard is from uh, a place called Hammond, Indiana, and they went to go scout that area. And the director said, you know, we can only describe it as charmless. There's no quaint downtown. And the city was basically a suburban Chicago industrial town. So they shot this movie in Cleveland. But I love that the actual town was too depressed to even shoot this in. And when you look at the film on, you know, on screen, it's a pretty depressed town. It, you know, like I love that they're next door to this like beaten up house with all those dogs. I mean, that dog thing is really funny. I guess when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, all right, Gremlins comes out in 84. That's the year, you know, a year or so after this, you know, Scrooge comes out, um, you know, in 88, a couple of years after that, you know, uh, Christmas Vacation, 89. Like those movies resonate so much more to me and are so much more fun to me. And I don't know if it's just maybe because as a kid, this is force fed to me or those movies learn from this one and improved on it. Because I think whenever you have a hit, this is a giant hit. I'm sure every note that these people got was make it more like the Christmas story, make it more like the Christmas story. And then what you have is people sucking a little bit more of the DNA out, a little bit more out. And I think what you have is a very good, solid Christmas movie that is beloved for sure, but it's a rare case where the original, I think, has been trumped by the other people who have stolen from it. I, I don't think it's about pace. I just think it's about they've taken everything good and just figured out how to make it a little bit more, you know, to, to my description, I guess, richer. Like, this movie has a lot of dead zones. It's fine. It's fun. It moves a little bit slower than... I wanted it to. I watched it with my kids. I had to really convince them to keep on watching for the first like 20 or 30 minutes because there wasn't that much funny stuff in it yet, you know, until you got to the tongue, until you got to the Santa, right? So it was those moments that really had to hook them in and they wound up liking it. But I can tell you, I've watched Elf six times this month. I've watched Home Alone three times this week. I've seen 8-Bit Christmas. Yes, my wife is in it. And my kids are watching it not because she's in it. They simply go bananas for it. Like, they love it so, so much. I've never seen anything like it. We've watched that movie, I would say, a minimum of 12 times in this month. And there's something about it where I can look at all those films. And even National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, we watch like four times this month. uh, Where I look at it and I go, oh, I'm because of this movie, I get to watch all these movies that I love um, because they they all improved upon it. And then maybe I can't separate the two. And maybe I'm being maybe I'm being anti what this show is, which is like focusing on not this film, but looking at other ones. It just didn't 
It didn't connect to me the way I wanted it to, although I appreciate the acting. I love the performances. I love the writing. I love Gene Shepard. It just, it felt like a slower paced Christmas movie. If you told me this came out in the 70s, I think I would give it a little bit more leeway. But because it's 83, I kind of have less leeway with it. I don't know why. Yeah, man, you sound crazy. I know, I know. I and I know people this is a beloved movie and yeah. and and I know that there are, you know, toys and things and yeah. I it is I don't dislike it. I just don't love it. I think what I like about it is it is one of those movies that to me like kind of threads the difference of well, I would have said working for kids and adults, but maybe yeah, maybe younger kids don't have the patience because the knockoffs of this have shortened their attention span i don't know like it but i just it, think i think like, would, like national lampoon's christmas vacation has i think all the emotional depth and heart and not to keep on like driving it back to this one but i will because i think john hughes uh has a very gene shepherd energy or capturing like these very interesting complex relationships of family and people so i will say that it's just more bang for your buck. And it's not like more slapstick. This movie has slapstick. This movie has heart. Like it just, it feels like it just has a little bit of a slower motor to it. Um, but I guess, you know, what am I, what, what I'm saying? It's not fast enough for me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm not connecting with it the way I wanted to. I, there was a time that I loved it because it was the only thing. And now there's so many other ones that I love. And I'm not talking about like, Oh, The Happiest Season. I love The Happiest Season, too. Great movie. You know, or, you know, the, uh, you know, whatever. Like, all, all these new Christmas movies that are out. Like, I'm down. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm watching tons of Lifetime and Hallmark movies. I watched a movie last night with the Lawrence brothers, Joey and Matthew Lawrence, and they both fall for the same girl called uh, Mistletoe Mix-Up. I'll watch all that shit. I'm in. Um, but I also appreciate the old movies, too. You know, I mean, I'm... I'm well, I am sorry yeah. that this is no mistletoe mix-up. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like this movie is so special that every time they've tried to like recapture it, it hasn't worked. You know, like they tried to make a sequel in the 90s. And, and you can tell that this is a sequel that's like responding to its own imitators. Because like it's definitely responding to Home Alone. Because they cast like our boy, our secession boy, they cast Kieran Culkin as Ralphie in the sequel. Which... You know, they even give him a scene like kind of at the beginning of the film where he like apes the Home Alone scene of like grooming himself in the mirror and giving himself like a as a wink. It's so dead on. I want to play a little bit of that just because he's talking about like trying to impress his teacher. The teacher character, um, Teddy Moore, is the only one who like returned for the sequel because everybody else like aged out of it. But I like it because it kind of sounds like he's working through like the character motivations of how much like he loves older women on secession still. It's just it's been his shtick since he was little. I have learned through the years that if you want to impress your teacher, it's very important to have a part in your hair. I don't know why, but parts in your hair make you seem very intelligent. A lot of grease helps, too. I should say, this one is called My Summer Story. It is not A Christmas Story 2, which got even worse reviews and also has a Home Alone contingent because it has like Daniel Stern in it. Yes. And that movie is so insecure about being a sequel to The Christmas Story that it insists in the trailer repeatedly uh, calling itself the official sequel. Oh, my God. It's the most beloved Christmas story of all time. And this holiday season, Ralphie is back. 
Ralphie? 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 Now he's a bigger kid with an even bigger wish. Holy jeez. A Christmas Story 2, the official sequel. The timeless tradition continues with all your favorite characters. Randy. Zerg's minions are everywhere. I just can't trust that son of a... Ralphie's best pals, Flick and Schwartz. Oh, here we go. I'll fight. Mom. It's sake no. I heard you sniffle. And the old man. It's a clicker! And I kind of feel guilty, honestly, Amy, that I am not loving this as much as I want to because I can't pinpoint what it is. I can't pinpoint, like, why it doesn't resonate with me anymore. I'm picturing you watching this movie and all of the weight that this movie has in your life. Like, kind of like you are Ralphie with the glasses on and, like, you've lost the lens and they're cracked. There seems to be, like... Yeah, maybe I, maybe level I, in the, that's it between you and the movie. That or you know, it's like maybe I OD'd on it, but I I can't imagine that because I've also watched Beverly Hills Cop and Ghostbusters a zillion times. I can do every line from those movies the minute they come on the screen. I can do every line from Home Alone the minute they come on the screen, and I don't OD on those movies. It could just be that you know I'm a little older than you, and the this movie. While it was fun, I also then got to enter into a world of, you know, Gremlins and all the other movies that I mentioned that I think pulled me in a lot more. And that those are the movies that resonated with me. I think I always felt that The Christmas Story were, was my parents' film. It was so funny, though, because I talked to my mom the other day who had watched 8-Bit Christmas, and she was like, oh, when I was your age, we had National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And I was like, oh, no, no, you had... Christmas story. That was your, that was your thing. And she's like, no, no, I, that was National Post. I was like, wait, I thought that was my thing. Like, so it's interesting, like what you connect with. I, I love the Wonder Years too. So I don't know. I mean, I think what I'm hearing is like the movies you like are bigger. Like they have a gremlin in it. Or like no, I mean, let's go to National Lampoon's and National Lampoon's. Can you do you like this more than National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Yeah. Really? Have you watched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation recently? No. All right, I want to challenge you to that. I want to, I want, I want you to watch that and tell me what you think is better on the next episode. I do want to just, if you do me that favor, I think I'm also giving you a great uh, holiday treat. It's, it is, it is the best vacation, in my opinion. I'm worried I can't get past the Chevy Chase of it all. I'm so. Oh tired. no, you can, you, you can, because he exists out like that's like a that's like the purest Chevy Chase. It's like the perfect. Um, I agree with you. Like, I have opinions about Chevy Chase, but I feel like that's, if I could lock him in Amber, that performance is pretty much my favorite Chevy Chase performance. I mean, you know, and there's some other ones in there, you know, Fletcher's obviously there. I think I'm just on the wavelength where like the stuff that I adore Mm -hmm. is like, A, movies that really drill into the idea that being a kid kind of sucks and you feel really powerless and frustrated, which I love seeing represented in movies because I think it's very true. Uh, And in that it's not necessarily the greatest time of your life. And B... Like movies that operate on kind of like the wavelength where like I adore it when like Ralphie has this fantasy that he, you know, is going to like be blind just to punish his parents. And in his like fantasy reenactment of it, that's like all mo- literally a soapy melodrama. Oh, I he love gets that. A, he has a British accent out of nowhere. That's just that's the kind of stuff that I, I love. Blind! Oh, 
brought you to this lowly state? Please tell us, no matter how it hurts, what did we do? No, I, I can't. Oh, please, please, Ralph, I must know what we did. What brought you to this? Please. Please. Please? It, it, it was? Uh, by the way, you, there's a lot of fantasy elements in, well, there's some fantasy elements in National Lampoon's. Not that broad, but I'll tell you this much, Amy. Uh, if you like this, you will like 8-Bit Christmas because 8-Bit Christmas, which we're going to talk to Michael Dowse. I know we've teased this a little bit, and I know that I'm pushing this movie uh, because I actually found that movie works for me even a little bit more than Christmas Story. It's a movie about a time when I was growing up. So we talk about American graffiti. We talk about, you know, these reflections or grease of, you know, this is this movie is about a, a kid in the 80s. Um, and what this kid wants is a Nintendo and the powerlessness of wanting Nintendo and and fighting against the parental groups who are like video games are bad and everything that this kid goes through. So, uh I think you'll like 8-Bit Christmas. We're going to talk to Michael Douse about what inspired him and how he treated it uh, to make it not just a Christmas movie, but actually a great movie. And so I really wanted to bring that into conversation here because I do think that there's so much similarities. And we're talking about improvements and sequels. And that that is the the, the cleanest uh, kind of comparison is 8-Bit and, and, uh, and Christmas Story. If you like Christmas Story, I think you'll like 8-Bit. And if you want to see something that... Uh, you know, maybe you didn't connect with Christmas Story. You might like Ape because it might feel more resonant to you because it hits all those same themes. Big fantasy sequences, powerless kids, no true moral, but just a really beautiful story. So uh, without any further ado, here's my interview with Michael Douse, who you might know uh, from his other films like The F Word and Stuber and The Goon, which is a great uh, hockey film as well. Michael, I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie. And just so you know, my children have watched this movie I would say no less than 15 times in the last week. I am fielding questions really? about... Oh, it, it is nonstop. I'm fielding questions about Mikey Trotter. I'm fielding questions <laughs> about Jacob Lavelle. I'm like, the kids are in this film and all their friends are in this film. And it really got me to think about the film. Now, obviously, I'm married to one of the people in the movie, June Diane Raphael. Something that I think is so interesting about this film is that it really is connecting with kids in this age group, and adults, too. You've done this like kind of magical thing that I think is so hard to do, which is get a movie where everyone can enjoy it, everyone can really love it, and I think it really comes from your background because I was looking at your whole career, and you really are like a chameleon when it comes to the work that you do as a director. I mean, you've done comedy, mock documentaries, you have done action movies, you have done romantic comedies, um, and you have now done this Christmas movie. What brought you to this? Like, what was the reason that you, did you always want to do a Christmas movie? Did you? No, I mean, yeah. not at all. I mean, I have kids, so I have a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old, so um, I always wanted to make a film for them. I made, the film I'd made before this was, like almost unwatchable, well, is unwatchable for children. I mean, it's about right. as foul mouthed as it can be. <laughs> like we would, I would take the kids to the mix room and we'd have like, you know, muting things to put on their heads phones for the, for the 10 year old. I'd be like, Hey, you might want to miss this part. Um, so it was partly like a reason, like just in the back of my mind, I should make a film that 
you know, my daughter's 12 that she could enjoy. So, but it wasn't really on the bucket list to do a Christmas movie until the script sort of came across my desk and I was, I read it and I was like, this is really funny. It relates to me. I was, I was a little bit older. I was in grade 10 in 1988, but I still remember that time clearly. And the script had a real voice and a real sense of humor and a real attention to detail, which I loved, and a great ending. And the pitch I gave to the producers was I wanted to make Goodfellas for kids, is that I wanted to make a film that doesn't, it's a heist movie. It's a, you know, it's a movie about like a gang getting together and trying to, trying to get something. And I think the key to that was, you know, I have a 12 year old, you don't, they're smart. Like they don't need stuff to be dumbed down. They, not at all. There's, they're completely savvy in storytelling and in plot and in structure. They know when something sucks. And um, I think the key to how I tried to approach it was not to dumb it down to the kids and to make sure that their stakes were as as real as any stakes in any movie. On top of making this film, you know, that has kids, that is about Christmas, it also takes place in the 80s. And I feel like this movie doesn't do all the things that I think you assume when you see an 80s movie. So that's something that you were conscious about as well, like not... Every second there's a needle drop. Everybody's wearing outfits from, you know, that look like they are, yeah. you know, the wedding singer. No offense to the wedding singer. It's just like, I think we've seen that, like, you did something that actually felt incredibly grounded in that time, not just celebrating Rubik's Cubes. I had the advantage of, or maybe the disadvantage of making a film in 1988, about 10 years ago. So right. I got that all out of my system. I made a film called Take Me Home Tonight. Oh, um, right. That was set literally in September 1988, around the same time. So I had done that. I had done like the flat tops and everybody in polos and all that jazz and sort of and all the needle drops. And I definitely wanted to go into something that was more grounded. And the sort of the philosophy we took was that, um, you know, if everything is like garish and 80s, nothing is. Or, you know, right. and if, like if the if the production design and the costume and everything is like. Neon and neon, by the by the way, wasn't a big deal in in 1988. That's more like early 90s. But right. if everything is that sort of vibe, then nothing is that vibe, and it just feels like a big, you know, clusterfuck of 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 shitty colors. Uh, so what we, we what we tried to do is is ground the the production design in something that was more sort of late 70s and early 80s, because at that time, unless you're loaded, you don't have like a house from 88. You have a house right. from 77 or 78. Um, and especially with the level of renovation that this family's going through, they definitely would have sort of things that, that, that flow back. So that to me felt like a much more neutral sort of production design. And then what, where we tried to punch up the color is the costumes and just sort of wanted to give it a good frame so that it wasn't, everything wasn't garish and, and just sort of the costumes punch. So that was sort of the approach just to, and then the needle drops, you know, we just tried to pick as the best music as we could. And they were, when Warner Brothers and New Line were generous with the um, with the music budget, so they they allowed us to put in some good tracks. Yeah, no, it it really it comes together, and I think you can't really talk about this movie without your great direction of this cast of child actors. I mean, there are a lot of kids in this movie, oh, yeah. and they are <laughs> fantastic. And I know there's that old rule or adage like never work with children or animals. You do both, yep. and you did it in the time of COVID. Yeah, it was. It was a weird experience. It was an incredibly hard film to make, for sure. Like, June can attest to that as well. It was, it was tricky because you're already dealing with kid hours, which is nine hours. Yeah. But 
but we knew that. So the schedule was, was big for that reason. It was a, it was a bigger shoot day. Um, the nice side of it is that, you know, you live a normal life, even though you're in lockdown, you can't do anything when you get out, you're working Spielberg hours. So you're home in yeah. nine hours and you're like, <laughs> unfortunately you're in a lockdown. So you're sitting there staring at the walls for 14 hours, but yeah, it's challenging because those nine hours very quickly get boiled down to about five and a half on the floor because the kids have to take school breaks. Once you get in the rhythm of that, you're good. But I, I think with the kids, you kind of just treat them like regular adults. And like, like I said to all of them, I'm going to treat you like my own kids and just, you know, I'll be tough and fair and we'll have a ton of fun. And, um, and what helps is when you had an actor like Winslow who had gone through this a couple of times, he plays Jake. And, and he was like a real leader. I kind of framed it like, you know, I'm, I'm the coach and you're more like the captain of the team. So you got to set an example on the floor and be great. And, uh, and he was awesome. Like he was the guy that just sort of led by example and was, couldn't be warmer to every level of the cast and just really, uh, really helped me do my job in a, in a great way. I mean, my thing is just prep. Like you make your film in prep. So right. I don't go to, I don't go to set wondering where I'm going to put the camera. Do you know what I mean? We don't have time for that. And, and talk about tone a little bit, too, because I think this movie does a really good job of balancing some really fun, big moments. You know, there's I don't want to spoil for people who haven't seen it, but there's a great chase scene in a mall that is, you know, it's just it's really just a it's a big, fun scene where, you know, Steve Zahn is like literally throws a guy off an escalator. Uh, <laughs> and, and then and then you have these other scenes in the film that are really beautiful, like two person you know, small, funny, real scenes. I mean, the movie really is able to juggle, I think, a lot of different tones. And like, you know, when we get to the third act, like that heist sequence is a whole, you know, different kind of vibe. Like, you know, that you, did you think about that as you're, you know, kind of putting this together, like balancing these, you know, different tones? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things we, I wanted to do was with a kid's movie, especially this, this movie where it's a retelling of a story is that you want to sort of play with the unreliable narrator a little bit right. and get inside of a kid's head. So things are, are pushed. Like, like you mentioned, oh, Timmy Keen, yeah. when you first introduce him, he comes in on a, on a roller dolly, like it's Salem's lot or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, ideas like that, that just like, yeah, we can do that. Or like there's laser lights behind the Nintendo. The first time you see it, all that stuff was to get inside of a kid's imagination and go, what could we do? Uh, like the, like, I don't know if you notice it, but when we do the King of the Mountain sequence, there's two snow hills. So there's one that's regular size, which is about 25 feet. Uh -huh. And then we built another one on the side of a hill that was like 50 feet. So when they actually go to oh, run that's up great. it, yeah, yeah. they're running up like a massive hill, which is nowhere near to the size of the hill in reality. Right. And so it's ideas like that, that kind of get into your head of like, of like, let's have fun with this story and let's, let's, let's really play it like a kid getting retold a story where they're making up, where it's not quite sure. Like that's, that's why the green helmet, blue helmet joke is in there right off the top. It's just to yeah. be like, is this reliable or not? And then the, the smaller moments, I think, you know, I'm just giving them the time to shine and to act and, and to, to be serious in those moments. And it seems to me, maybe part of the secret sauce of you coming in and doing this is you come in with this background of doing really, I think, hard, funny comedy, but uh, you also, you know, are respecting this movie outside of it just being a Christmas movie. So you're not deferential to it being a Christmas movie, but did you 
watch anything to prepare for it in that way? Did you look at Christmas movies or did you just say, no, for no, sure. I'm making... For sure, yeah. I mean, we. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Christmas Vacation. I mean, that was a oh movie. Oh my God, it's we, one of the best. We rented it to own as kids growing up. Like right. my posse of friends, like we were such losers, we'd get drunk and watch Christmas <laughs> Vacation and we just never returned it from Blockbuster. So we can quote that movie up and down amongst my friends, that's the lexicon is any quote from Christmas Vacation. So that was sort of the ground zero. And then obviously we looked at, you look at the classics, you look at, you know, A Christmas Story, and then you also look at movies that had, that I really loved that had these sort of group of friends that, that really nailed it. And they also had narration like The Sandlot and um, Stand By Me were big influences. And Stand By Me was like, you know, that's a, that's a great parallel because it has, it, again, it has more depth for a kid's movie, um, there's a murder, you know, things right. like that. But there's also like ridiculous vomiting and unreliable narration as well. And, and like storytelling, which is so, I just think it gives you like the, the thing about making a kid's movie is you can make, you can get away with these massive physical moments, which are really funny because you know the kids are going to dig it. And it's, you tonally, you have sort of the, the bandwidth to do it. But I, I, I swear to God, it's comedy. It's comedy. And I've been doing it every single movie. Comedy buys you the goodwill of an audience. If you make them laugh, they inherently care about the character and then they're going to care about, and it buys you those quieter moments where you can drop, you know, a headbanger getting cancer or something like that, where right. you get, where you get sort of, you get people to really care about your character and, and have these small emotional scenes within it and people buy it. And uh, you know, I always like, there's, there's like tonal shifts you hear a lot. I'm like, yeah, there should be tonal shifts. That's, that's right. telling a story. It should have, it should have a different, like, you're allowed to sort of shift from funny parts to more serious parts, you know? Well, I think that this is the problem sometimes I have with movies in general. It's like we've been, we fall into this weird middle ground where it's like it neither is funny nor is it dramatic. And it just sort of like, it just is. And yeah. we don't make it like, there's not enough big choices made in either direction because of that. I think it gets watered down. So it's refreshing and it's exciting when you see big, you know, like you, you make swings. Um, when you look at the movie and, in total now and you see the reaction to it um is there a part of the film that you are the most proud of and obviously you're proud of the whole film but is there something in it that you're like oh i really love that we got this or that came together and didn't expect it to come together like that um i think the ending i'm really proud of the ending was yeah. was it's true that's tough sledding that's tricky tricky business and we tried it's a hard sort of tonal shift to i don't want to ruin it but yeah the ending ending is something um yeah, I'm pretty proud of like it was it was something that that we played with and um, we tried to always improve in the edit suite and we never we just sort of got it sort of the first time and 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 it felt we tried to sort of muck around with it and see if it can be better or anything like that. But it just kind of locked in and and worked really well. And, um, you know, I, I love the ending already. I'm, I'm a big supporter of. You know, the sign of a good movie is you don't know how it's going to end to the last three minutes. Yeah. And this movie does that. And it also has a quite a punch emotionally. So I think that's a hard 7-10 split in a Christmas comedy. It's so great to watch. And I guess I'll ask you this. We always are asking people, like, what uh, one movie would you send up to outer space? Like, if we had to, like, if we could only save 100 films in humanity, I will ask you a, a version of this that's slightly different, which is not yours, because we know yours is great, but... Is there a Christmas movie that you would say this is the one that you would save? If you only could save one, is <laughs> is, is there? And, and you, let, let's say yours is saved. Yours is saved. Mine's is saved. Eight, okay. Eight, yeah, eight bit is saved. So 
uh, you now are you're sending one more. You have a you have a, a lifeboat out there for one more. You know you have yeah. You can only yeah, say yeah. one more. I gotta go with Christmas Vacation. I was between It's a Wonderful Life and Christmas Vacation, but I'm gonna yeah. stick with six. Just for the posse I, back in Calgary. I, I think you uh, have to. I mean, I, I respect that in a major, yeah. major way. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you, Michael. Amy, you were missed there. But uh, let's keep on talking about Christmas Story. Let's do it. Okay. Here's the thing. Do any of these movies that you're talking about have an actor as charming as Peter Billingsley? And do any of these movies that you're talking about have an actor who like Peter Billingsley, was there when the Challenger exploded. Did you know this? What? Here he is getting interviewed about it. Um, okay, we were all cheering and screaming. Then there was a microphone that was right out in front of us, and we could make out the word malfunction. And with that, everybody started to be quiet. There were still some other people. Then we heard um, the words, the vehicle has exploded. And with that, everybody went into Peter, who was there? Um, the parents were there. There were a lot of little kids, yeah. m- much younger than you. Was was there anybody there to, to look after them? Um, yes, there were. There were some of the, of the kids' mothers that were there. Just everybody was in a huge state of shock. They were all in panic, and it was it was just an awful, awful thing. Yeah, he literally was there. He watched the Challenger explode. And when you hear him speak, I feel like he could have done his own narration. That is a very well-spoken child. I like that. I think Peter Billingsley could be our new Gene Shepard. By the way, did you know that Peter Billingsley is also in another Christmas classic, a huge one that I already mentioned? He is an elf. Oh, that's right. He is an elf. Yep. He's like he's like a producer buddy, right, with like those kids. He's the the elf that reprimands Buddy for not making enough etch-a-sketches. He's like, oh, you're falling behind, buddy. Uh, oh. And then he's talking behind Buddy's back, and Buddy overhears it, and that's when he passes out on Peter Billingsley. It's a, it's a great. I mean, Elf is fantastic too. It's such a funny movie. Oh. Um, I mean, but, what a perfect cameo. I mean, because like, right? Doesn't Gene Shepard even cameo in here? Yeah, he plays the guy who like tells Ralphie to go to the back of the line at the Santa store. So yes. all of these nods, man, it's just beautiful. Like, you can't deny that this movie has had like such. A wild impact, not just in film, but like creating totems of the lamps. I learned that like that leg lamp, there's this dude who sells like $250 copies of this leg lamp, like full size, 42 inches, whole thing, which when you really look at the leg lamp before they put the shade on, it, it gets very, it gets very close to some, to some parts. But like he made so much money selling copies of that lamp that when the original house for a Christmas story went up on for sale on eBay, he bought it. He bought the house that they filmed this at. I mean, the inside, of course, is a sage, but he bought like the outside of the house. He turned it into a museum and a hotel and, of course, a gift shop to sell his lamp. And you can rent this house. You can rent it most days of the year. And it's like not crazy. It's kind of crazy expensive. By the way, you can rent the Home Alone house now, too. This is a great time for Airbnb uh, sets. It is. But if you want to stay in the Christmas story house on Christmas Eve, it'll set you back a cool Three thousand nine hundred and ninety-five dollars. If that is honestly too much not for you, that bad, not that bad yeah. for a Christmas Eve. Not At that bad. The, I mean, it's a memorable Christmas Eve. Yeah. He also bought the house next door, the Bumpus house, which was oh, like yeah. way cheaper. So if you don't have money, you can actually be a Bumpus and stay next door. And you can have all those dogs running around. By the way, I, I just have to call out like Darren McGavin really does give one of the most all-time great performances in this. Like throughout, like. Uh, you know, I, when I think back on this movie, I think that's one of the things that I forgot and one of the things I walked away appreciating so much is how 
how specific yet universal he is and that sequence where he you know he has this like hard shell of a man and then when you see him with that leg oh my god it is he's so proud of it just out on the street you know just wanting to show everyone it's so like oddly pornographic when you think about it especially at the time that it was out there it's, I love it so much yeah he is so joyous and I mean he of course also plays the dad in um Billy Madison what he like yes screams at Adam Sandler you know right here in this scene uh, please, Billy, please, no gibberish tonight, please, I beg you. Sorry, Daddy. Uh, this is a big night for me tonight, gents. I, uh, I have an important announcement to make. Get us here! Get that Billy, get the hell out of here! But, I mean, if we're talking about uh, movie connections from this film, I think my favorite one is very weird. Okay, so you know the kid, um, Artie Rob, who plays shorts, like one of his friends? Yes. Did you know that Artie Rob has a connection to another like rarely seen legendary film? Oh, Artie Rob, no. What what is what is Artie Rob's connection? Okay. Well, so Artie Rob grew up to be, you know, an older child actor in the mid nineties who became friends with the Pussy Posse. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, Toby McGuire, that whole group. And he shot this improv film based around hanging out with those guys called Dom's Plum. Don Don's Plum. Don's Plum. Not Dom Cobb, but Don's Plum. Dom Cobb. Dom Cobb, Don Plum. But Don Plum is like a kind of this black and white artsy 90 movie where he's at a diner with like Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, like basically everybody. And they're just like talking and arguing and trying to bring hot girls to impress each other using the word bro a lot, as you can hear here. I apologize, bro, but I was a cock and you know, but I fucking love you guys, so... You shouldn't act like that, bro. I'm sorry, man. I'm angry, but you should just be more considerate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just what I'm like, bro, and I apologize. I know. It's cool, bro. That's cool. I'm That's sorry. Cool. I'm sorry for attacking you. I'm sorry. Man. Right. It's all good, bro. Yeah. And now, if this um, movie does not sound familiar to you, it is because Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio have done everything they can to make sure it will never be distributed in America. Like Toby Maguire thinks that his improv, quote, revealed personal experiences or tendencies. So they have shut it down. Never let it be shown here. It is Whoa. on YouTube. That is where I pulled that clip. Uh, but yeah. It, I know it, what I'm watching. That's my new holiday Yeah, is that special. your new holiday movie? Yeah. It is a, you will, you will see them, you will see them uh, really be young and aggro. It's pretty funny. They're definitely in character. Like Leo's like acting up as like the in control mean guy, kind of like at one point mm-hmm. he makes um. Amber Benson shows up. He like makes Amber Benson is playing a homeless girl, like throw stuff at him and run out of the, of the room. But yeah, it is about the most nineties thing I think you could ever watch. So thank you, Artie Rob, for not only making the film of the eighties, but making a film that is a time capsule of the nineties. Wow. By the way, also Bob Clark, like who has made like the other secondary, amazing Christmas movie, black Christmas, the original one from the seventies with Olivia Hussey. I mean, he's this guy whose career is so eclectic when you look at it. He made like Black Christmas, like a very like female-centered horror film. Then he did Porky's, you know, and he said that Porky's was like his movie about like if 17-year-old boys have their sexuality repressed, what will result? And then he made this one, which he said actually fits in a line because he thinks that a Christmas story is about what happens if nine-year-old boys have their natural aggressiveness repressed. So he's into kind of like repression and like a burbling out that that 
that subsumes. That is the only way I can imagine holding his whole career together. But he was like a giant fan of, of Gene Shepard. Like he, he would tell the story that like when he was younger, he was driving to meet a girl at a date in Miami and Gene Shepard's on the radio telling like the story of the guy getting his tongue stuck on the metal pole. And he loved the story so much that he just circled the block in his car and was 45 minutes late for his date. And it was like, I will make a Gene Shepard movie eventually. So Amy, I want to go back to just how this movie came out. Obviously, it's a classic. But when this was released, just before Thanksgiving, um, it was a hit. Uh, but by the time Christmas rolled around, the movie had been pulled from most theaters because it had been played out. And they there are all these complaints that were lodged at theater owners in the studio. And uh, they actually put it back on the screen for people to see it in 84. Um, so it's sort of a movie that is, you know, I think out of the gate kind of beloved, but then like TBS and Shawshank, it then becomes inject like we can't escape it. Like in many ways, like I was able to escape It's a Wonderful Life my entire life until we did it here on this podcast um, because I could, you know, navigate around. It. And this is maybe where I, I spent most of my time watching something like this. Uh, but I can't imagine that it wasn't well reviewed. I mean, that people must have loved this film. Almost everybody loved it. The only person who didn't love it is Vincent Canby from the New York Times. And this is what he said. There are a number of small, unexpectedly funny moments in A Christmas Story, but you have to possess the stamina of a pearl diver to find them. That's the best... what I'm talking about. Oh, Let's go, stop. Vincent. Go, Canby yourself. The best thing to be said about Mr. Clark as a director is that he admires Mr. Shepard's wildly hyperbolic humor, though he doesn't have much of a gift for translating it to film. I don't His agree heavy that. touch is not quite the same as Mr. Shepard's habit of finding humor through the exaggeration of language. The movie's big comic pieces tend to only be exceedingly busy. Though the actors are all very able, they are less funny than actors in a television situation comedy that one has chosen to watch with the sound off. And then his final diss in the film is he says, also, I'm not at all sure that the curriculum at Warren G. Harding Public School, which Ralphie attends, would require that nine-year-olds read Silas Marner. Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, um, literary I'll, dig. Well, oh, you're I think such that, a can be. I think there are a couple things in there that I agree with and I disagree with as well. I think that the performances are very good. I think that the the moments are a little bit more spread out. And I think it, it in a way, that makes it more, you know, like if you invest the time, you'll walk away. I think the kids, when I watch it with my kids, they did wind up liking the movie. But I really had to kind of hold them in place to watch it. And I was surprised that they have not asked to watch it again. I mean, we literally are asked to watch these movies over and over and over again. So it's a great experiment oh, to see, right. you know, what I'm doing. But uh, your, your kids are going to go up to run basketball teams. They're not going to be film critics. All right. Yeah. Well, one of them, at least. All right. Um, all right. So, Amy, great to talk to you about A Christmas Story. I hope everyone's having a beautiful holiday season. And uh, if you're listening to this, make sure you check out the uh, live stream at one point that Amy and I are going to do a little talk back on The Matrix, the new one. So uh, follow us on social media to find out details of when that is or how you could watch it after we've done it if you missed it. Uh, all right. Well, Amy... Uh, I'll see you in the new year with a new series. We don't even know what we're doing yet, but we'll see you soon. Oh, it's going to be so new. All right. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there. 
where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.